The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me. Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPods. So we're here with famed Arkansas attorney, Satch Oliver. And so Satch, good morning to you. It's Satch got me going early this morning, 6 a.m. Pacific time. He's like, we're going to do something like this. Got to do a little bit before the working hours because got a lot of clients that need a lot of attention. Is that right, Satch? That's right, Dan. Thanks for joining me so early. Yes, I was like 8 a.m. Central. What time is that? Like, wow. Good thing I'm an early riser. We got chickens to tend to. We got a farm out here in Nevada that I'm rocking and rolling at. Well, Satch, it was really great seeing you in Huntington Beach just about, it was like a, only like a little bit, about a week ago, we finished up that one. Yes. So what was your uh, what was your favorite part about Hunt, the Trialers, you know, TLU Live Huntington Beach? I think it was the atmosphere. It was the energy and the environment was my favorite part. It was so good that we just wanted to participate and we wanted to be at the different events on time. And I'll tell you, that's kind of unusual. I don't always want to go to all of the different events or or do anything like that sometimes. But for example, you're, you know, your networking party started at five o'clock. My wife and I were there at five o'clock. And so just, it was that kind of energy where you wanted to be a part of it. Good. Cause that's what I was really, you know, cause when I think about conferences and events, the ones that I put on, I really think about how I want people to feel, you know, the connections because after COVID you know, I was here in my con in my apartment in LA by myself for basically two years in California. So real strict about, Probably a little looser in Arkansas with their yep. COVID restrictions. A little stricter here in California. So, you know, really miss really people in general. People in general. So, Satch, how did you tell us about your journey to, you know, how did you decide to become a trial lawyer or maybe a lawyer in general? Yeah. That's probably the first step. So, getting to be a trial lawyer is an interesting story because I, I really didn't know exactly wanted, what I wanted to do. When I was an undergrad, I was with the College of Agriculture. I loved agriculture, everything about it. I actually thought I might go to work for Farm Bureau someday. And I found myself in student government at ASU Jonesboro, and it was awesome. I got into it. I loved advocating. I loved the political side. I loved the, the communicating, the, the speeches that I had to give to run for election. And then once I got elected, and then working with the administration to get things that I wanted for the kids and the college kids at the school. And I loved it so much in my experience at ASU that my junior year, toward the end of it, I went to the chancellor of the university who had become a mentor and friend of mine, Dr. Les Wyatt. And I said, Dr. Wyatt, I want to go to work for ASU. He said, you're hired. What do you want to do? I said, I want to work in the governmental affairs department. He said, perfect. Oh, that's exactly what you need to be doing. He said, do you know how much money you want to make? And I really can't remember, Dan, what I said. It was either $40,000 or $60,000. And, and whatever number I said, he said, deal, you're hired. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm rich. I've made it. I just got the best job ever. And he, he, stood, he stopped for a minute and he said, I think you might be making short-term decisions instead of long-term decisions. We'd love to have you hired on here. You're exactly the talent we're looking for, but... I'd like for you to think about long-term decisions. I remember asking him what he meant by that. He said, 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, as far out as your mind can possibly think, are you making decisions long-term? 
And I remember it blew my mind up. He said, I tell you what I want to do. There's a visionary who's a dear friend of mine named Wallace Fowler. I want you to sit down with Wallace Fowler. He literally called Wallace Fowler up in front of me, said, Wallace, yeah, you know Satch Oliver? Know the kid? I'm sending him to your office right now. He hangs up and he directs me to drive across town to Wallace Fowler's office. I walk in. Wallace Fowler, the Fowler Centers of every university in the South, the Fowler Center, that's this Wallace Fowler. He just owns so, so many businesses, extremely successful. And I, my first time to sit down with him, I walked into his office and he said, what are you passionate about? What not how are you? It was, what are you passionate about? I said, I, I'm passionate about advocating for these students up here. I really am. He said, what's your awesomeness? What? He goes, what are you awesome at? You know it. Everybody knows it. He goes, I think I know what it is, but I, I want you to say it. I said, I think I'm okay at public speaking. He said, I agree. So he said that we've got to find a need in the community where your passion and your awesomeness line up. And if we can do that, you're going to do things beyond your wildest imagination. Well, he stumped me right there because I'm in my 20s. I have no idea what the needs of the community are, right? I have no clue. And so I asked him, what's a community need that lines up with advocacy and public speaking? And here's what I remember what he said. He goes, I have got a stable of lawyers that work for me. He goes, I get sued all the time with all my businesses. And he goes, I don't even like lawyers, really. He said, but all my years of litigation, when I've realized, well, there's too many lawyers, there aren't very many great trial lawyers. And just having met you and seen you and talked to Dr. Wyatt about you, I think you ought to investigate what a trial lawyer does. And I walked out of his office with one goal. What is a trial lawyer? And once I figured it out, that's all I wanted to do. So I enrolled into law school with one goal in mind, and that was being in the courtroom and being a trial lawyer. It's the only focus that I had. And I fell in love with this profession before I even uh, took the LSAT. Wow. That is a, uh, I'm glad I asked that question because the passion and the awesomeness, that's where, one thing I always think about is, you know, what's your superpower? What's my superpower? So I figure out that, and then really, then can I use that to, can I align that with something I'm excited about where I can actually make a living at it too? Because it's nice to have a passion and a superpower, but if it, if it if nobody else cares about the world, it's called a hobby. Yeah. At the most, at the most, at the most. Unfortunately, I was able to find my passion and superpower in between, you know, bringing great teacher trial lawyers together and the people and connecting them in the networking and, and, uh, and that I really enjoy a lot. Well, I've developed it into what I call the three point solution to finding your community niche. And I do a presentation on it now. And Wallace Fowler taught me that and I've kind of expanded it now into a formula into finding what you're passionate about, finding what your awesomeness is, finding where the need is in the community. And if you line up those three points, you found your need, your solution and where you're needed. What's the answer? Don't, don't, don't tease me now. Like, this is important stuff here, Satch. Sure. Well, I'll tell you, on, I'm, I am always a little bit surprised by the number of people when you say, what are you most passionate about? And, the, and you get the deer, deer in the headlight look, right? And so I, I am now prepared for that. And I, I'm in a position now where actually people are sent, coming over to me and saying, you know, what should I do? Where should I go? And then even kids are coming and saying, where do I need to go? What do I need to do? And I would say you need to put, I call it your measuring belt, your measuring belt. Of course, you've been around me. I almost relate everything to my country living. And so I've got a belt on right now. And so when I put those belt, this belt on, and you got that belt back there too, Dan. Oh, yeah. 
doesn't wear that for show. That's just part of the daily outfit. That's right. That's right. I mean, that thigh that, you know, a lot of people think having something that size right between your, your lower and your belly would be uncomfortable. That's why you got to stay lean or else that thing gets uncomfortable. You got to stay lean, especially in the saddle. Got to stay lean. Go on, though. I interrupt you. No, no, that's all right. I, I call it the belt measuring test. And really, it's simple. Are you measuring what you're getting excited about? Are you journaling what you're getting excited about? Are you writing down what you dread or you don't like? For example, if you wake up in the morning and you roll out of bed, and that's why I call it the belt test, and you just put that belt on every loop just as fast as you possibly can, write down what you're about to do because yourself, you're telling yourself, you are telling you, I like what I'm about to do. But if you just can't get out of bed and you find yourself moving slowly or dreading it, write it down because whatever you're about to do, it's not something that you're really that passionate about. And so you've got to start measuring also, I call it the blood boil. If you feel yourself getting excited, getting chill bumps, you know, you're just fired up about something, monitor it. So many people aren't really just watching themselves to feel who they are versus what are you doing and you're dreading it. And so if you're willing to get up at four in the morning or three in the morning or like you did this morning, early in the morning, write it down because whatever you're about to do, you must be passionate about. If you find yourself staying up past midnight because you're just so excited about it and you just can't, you can't put that direct examination down because you're so fired up about getting it just right, write that down because that means you're passionate about it. But the opposite is also true. So that's what I call this measuring test of finding out who you are. Got it. Let me ask you this question, because you actually decided to be a trial lawyer even before you went to law school, where, you know, I just went to law school thinking I just need to get more education because I really don't want to do a manual labor job my whole life because I was a house painter at the time. I'm like, this is hard work and it's exhausting. <laughs> I'm not going to be built for this forever. So because I didn't really have a, any specific mind in when I went to law school, except to go to school and keep getting educated because I figured something good would happen if I was maybe a little bit more smarter, a little bit more uh, educated, I guess. But you actually decided I'm going to be a trial lawyer before you even started law school. So what specific steps did you take in law school? I mean, what advice would you give law students who, you know, when they first start, like, I'm going to be the greatest trial lawyer in the country. So now it's one thing to desire something. It's a, a whole nother thing to create, to make a plan that you actually execute and follow to get to where you want to go. So what plan did you make for yourself? Well, you used a word there. That's one of my mantras. It's it's not just set goals. It's set goals, execute goals. There's a lot of people that are very good at setting goals. But what about execution? And so I'm a big fan of setting goals, executing goals. I'll tell you that one of the ingredients to our success is I had a mentor early on who is a wonderful man and a very good trial lawyer, Frank Bailey. And I went to work for Frank before law school and that summer in between undergrad and law school. And I will tell you that what drove me to do that was fear because I'm a first generation attorney and I was I was intimidated or afraid of not knowing how to act like a lawyer, not saying the right words. Not I, I didn't know. I was afraid of what I didn't know, basically. And so it motivated me. I thought, well, maybe I need to work for a trial lawyer in between before I even go to law school. So I I went, actually, I, I called Mr. Bailey's office and Becky answered the phone, his his assistant. I said, I'd like to go to work for Mr. Bailey. She said, Mr. Bailey's not hiring. He's a solo practitioner. He hasn't hired anybody in 30 years. Basically hung up on me. 
and she did it nicely. I called back two or three days later and I said, hey, hey, Becky, I'd really like to, you know, to find a job somehow there. I'll do anything. She goes, Satch, I'm sorry. He doesn't have internships, clerks, nobody. I'm telling you, he hadn't hired anybody in 30 years. She basically nicely hung up on me again. I brainstormed with my mom and my dad that night some magic words. And it was my mom's idea to say this. I called the next day and I said, Becky, I would just like to spend five minutes with Mr. Bailey. Remove the words job, remove the words interview, remove anything like that. Just could I spend five minutes with Mr. Bailey? Those magic words worked. She said, sure, I'll schedule you for five minutes tomorrow. So I showed up at Mr. Bailey's office the next day and I'll never forget. I sat down. He has a very Atticus Finch office and he dressed with those suspenders and that classic suit. And he said, what can you do for me? And I remember I said, nothing. He said, well, what do you want from me? I said, I'd like for you to take me with you everywhere you go. And something about that caught his attention. He said, well, I see you've not been to law school yet. So I can't imagine you being able to do much around here legal wise, but I need some stuff painted. I need the shrubs trimmed. I need begonias planted and we can need some help. We're behind in the filing system. And sure, this sounds like fun. You can go with me everywhere I go. And it never stopped. Mr. Bailey started taking me everywhere he went. Before I got out of law school, I'd already second chaired my first trial. We had to get permission from the judge and defense lawyer for that to happen. And then I'd already taken a deposition or two from some of Frank's longtime insurance defense lawyer friends who agreed to let me do it before I'd even gotten out of law school. So having that mentor all the way through, I would call Frank and go over the classes. And he'd say, well, you may have to take that class, but you're never going to need that in what we do. And But then he would say, okay, you need to really pay attention in this particular class. We're going to need that. The search for mentors is really what you know drove me to start you know, during the pandemic, this trial lawyer's university or was case analysis at the time, because I never, you know, my dad was a lawyer, but he wasn't a mentor. I mean, he was a mentor on life, but not on the business and not on becoming a trial lawyer. And without a mentor, I mean, a, a mentor can cut years off your development to say the least. And, and even, you know, make sure that you actually do develop because without a mentor, you get your ass kicked three or four times in court. You start thinking this ain't for me. It's not for my clients. I got to just settle stuff. You know, if you're a criminal defense lawyer, you got to plead. And if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, take the best settlement you can get because the courtroom, you're just going to get killed. So a great mentor and having a mentor is everything. And how many, you know, you teach quite a bit. You know, we just talked before you're coming on. We're both going to Oregon this August to teach there. So tell us, what is it that you are, you know, what do you get the most from teaching? Why do you spend so much time on the road? traveling and teaching? Well, my mother is a school teacher. She taught in our small community where I grew up. I mean, she taught me in like the second grade, third grade, fourth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. And I know a lot of you listen to this saying, man, that's unheard of. That's like in the little house on the prairie. Well, that's about where I grew up. And it's still like that today. But she's a big part of my life. And I got to see what a difference a teacher can have, not in just my life, but I watched her affect other people's lives. So I would say teaching has been a part of my DNA, who I am from the very beginning. And early on, even when I maybe wasn't even qualified, I got asked to give some presentations for the Arkansas Trial Arts Association. And I got to see that, that feel, that glimpse of taking a concept or principle that's worked for us and giving it to somebody else. And a month later, they say, hey, that worked. It helped my client. And I put it to use. And it either helped with the trial or it helped drive the settlement higher. 
And it doesn't take very many of those, as you know, Dan, to for the word helping and teaching to become addicting in a positive way. That if something's working for us and we're seeing the results go up, and that's what I call vertical growth instead of horizontal growth, in that we want to grow vertically with our knowledge set so that a case or the same fact pattern that we handled 10 years ago, and let's say we got $1 million for that same exact fact pattern. If we're growing vertically today, we want to get $10 million for it just because we have honed our skills in such a way that the product through verdict and settlement is so much more. Well, if we're honing in vertically on our skill set and we're seeing results skyrocket, then if we share that, then we can have more of an impact of helping people. And when I say people, it's more than just even clients. What about the families of all the lawyers coming to Trial University? You know, everybody there probably got past the kids. And so if we drive the results up where justice is served, the community's better off, the client's trust is fully funded to take care of them, plus little Johnny, who's the lawyer's son, gets to eat. So it's just a win-win. It sure is. And, you know, it's like anybody's lost trials, you know, especially if you lost a few in a row. Because one time I lost, I think, like 10 in a row as a, as a criminal defense lawyer. But you really start to talk to yourself. And being a winning trial lawyer is a whole different world than being a losing trial lawyer. I mean, and not the way you see yourself, but, you know, having money to take care of your family, to, to you know, put them in the right schools, all those things cost money. And if you're, you know, losing, you're generally not getting these things. Or you're just selling everything and being a good marketer, but you're not much of a trial lawyer. So what do you do on a, or what are you doing today and on a regular basis to get better at being a trial lawyer? And I know one thing helps a lot, teaching, getting up and presenting concepts that are complex in front of people and breaking them down and having to study their faces and make sure that they get it. Like the, to see the lights go on in their eyes when you're sharing that, whatever it is that you're sharing at the time. I know that's one thing I think it really helps. And I've seen it like the Joe Freeds and the Rex Parises and the Joey Lowe's and the, and the Nick Rallies, all that time in front of other lawyers teaching, I think really hones the skills. But what else besides that are you doing to get better every day? I think spending time with clients is a way to get better. And I think, what in the world? Well, I'll, I, we take the position that we need to spend enough time with our clients that our clients and who they are and their awesomeness can have a positive impact on us. And we've got several stories about that. But for example, today, uh, the Lang family, it's a wonderful, beautiful family, are driving down, they live up north, but their son got tragically killed in 18 Wheeler Ray in eastern Arkansas. And so they're coming down to spend the day with, with us today. And they're gonna get here at 10 o'clock and we're bringing in barbecue and we're just gonna spend hours with them. They're gonna spend time with me, with other team members, with the entire team. And I will tell you, I've not yet met them, talked to them on the phone, talked to them by Zoom, but I've yet to meet them in person. Today's that day. But my thoughts are, and I've been thinking about, is, you know, tell me about your love for Jason. Tell me about who, who he is. Tell me what he is. How did y'all do such a great job raising him to be someone who gives back to the community? And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to learn from them. Like, they're going to, everybody thinks that it's all about us doing something for the clients. But what we found is that the people we're representing, beautiful, wonderful people who have done such great things, they may be the best grandma in the world. I want to learn, how do you be the best grandma in the world? How, whenever you 
you look down and your child looks up with looks up at you and that child just that's all they want to do it's like they saw the sunlight for the first time then that mom or that daddy or that grandma they're doing something beautiful and how can we learn from that and then you absorb it into who you are and i will tell you that that's where we're starting to see even more of that growth yes the teaching is huge i've got to give a presentation on Sunday in Las Vegas, and I am actually racking my brain. I got up this morning. All right, what can I, how can I improve? What can I do differently? What can I, what do we have to offer? And I'm going to actually be reviewing a, a deposition transcript this week, pulling out the nuggets of what worked and what didn't work in that deposition so that I can teach everybody how we got that witness to say this conduct was reckless. I got to build it. And so that's what I plan on doing by by then. And the next thing is constantly seeking. Through you, I next Tuesday, I'm going to spend the day with Sean Claggett. And I've been telling my friends and everybody that, hey, I'm going to spend the day with Sean Claggett. And I'll tell you, I've gotten some feedback. Like, well, you know, why? Why are you going to spend all this time with Sean Claggett? We're getting these crazy results. Why would I need to go do that? I was like, I want to, I want to learn from him. I want to experience he's doing something different that we've never done before. He's doing something cool. He's doing something I don't understand. And so I want to go learn all day long. And then with everything that Sean does apply to us, probably not. But what if one thing does? What if one thing changes the way we do something? And that'll affect our clients forevermore. So it's a combination of these things is how we continually grow and expand. And then I will tell you, every focus group that we do, jury simulation, and of course, verdicts, it's just they don't happen as many times. If we go to trial two to four times a year, that's a lot. And so we're doing a lot more focus groups and jury simulations. And every time we put ourselves out there and the facts out there, I learn something about how to be a better trial lawyer every time from the community. It's interesting you mentioned the Sean Claggett because I, I live in Vegas. And so I see him a little bit more than if I live someplace else. I played golf the other day. I'm not very good, but I'm getting better. I finally, I finally am getting a little confidence in my golf game. So that's exciting. But Sean is, you know, I know you and Sean, you guys know each other back from the reptile days. Is that right? Like you were leaving and he was coming in. Yeah, that's right. As I was leaving, he was coming in. So Sean and I actually met, shake hands for the first time in Huntington Beach. And then I went to dinner with him, but that's the first time we actually ever met. We've talked on the phone, we've texted, we've emailed, we've talked through mutual friends, but as far as shaking hands, it was in Huntington Beach. All right. See that? Bringing people together. Yeah. Bringing people together. And besides, because I was just going to ask something I was going to ask you about is your use of consultants, because you are, you know, getting real high up in the game, yet Sean's a contemporary of yours. It's not like he's, you know, 70 years old and has this many more years of experience in you, but he is really doing a good job building his cases and, you know, getting consistent results. And so that's impressive. And that's one of the reasons, actually, it's one of the reasons I moved here too, was to learn from him. He's always doing these work days. And if I wasn't have to go to Hawaii for the Western trial lawyers, I would be there on Tuesday with you. See that way. And what, who are you speaking for on Sunday? What conference? 360 degrees advocacy. Oh, great. That's what it's, that's one of the reasons I moved to Vegas. All the conferences coming. See, I didn't even know you were coming, Satch. You know, I live here and you didn't call me and tell me this is hurtful, but I'm going to get over it. You know, I knew you were going to tell me today. Yeah. I knew I was going to say today, Dan. There we go. That, that works out great. But you also use our friend Philip Miller for on your trials too. And tell us about your, you know, why, again, Guy, with your experience, what's Philip bringing to the table that Satch is helping Satch and his client? 
Philip, what I love about Philip is we bring Philip in on certain cases at the beginning. And he actually does this brainstorm session, landmine session early on, where we identify all of the negatives of the case and then come up with a sophisticated plan to swift boat those negatives. And then you move into discovery and depositions and you're taking out all of the negative landmines in the case throughout. And then we'll do initial jury research, then another round or two during discovery, depending on how long it is and what you need. And then, of course, at the end, we're going to do what we call packaged. You've got the depositions, you've got the discovery, packaged jury research and simulations, and then dress rehearsal before trial where it all comes together. And so Philip has got this very structured approach that is easy to follow, and he's going to actually help hold you accountable to those deadlines and, and the whole team accountable. He was here this last Tuesday, spent the day with us on an 18-wheeler case, a tragic case against RNL carriers. And so I'll tell you, Philip has been a mentor of mine for 2009, wow. 2010, that we've known each other. He's somewhere in there. So over a decade, let's say that for sure. So another thing I like about Philip is he will walk in and say, Satch, I know you think this is a great strategy. It's stupid. It will not work. You need to let it go. Quit doing it. And I'm talking about right now. So I guess he, he will figuratively slap me. And when you have a strong personality like me and a confidence that I'm thankful to have that I have, I need somebody like that in my life. It's one reason my wife is so wonderful for me. She says she calls me my, my little humble pie, my wife, because she's always bringing me back down. But Phil's so blunt, and that's good for me. I know that may offend others. And then at not our last trial, uh, which he, he helped with the previous trial, it was an 18-wheeler trial, and we're multi-days into the trial, and tomorrow I've got the cross-examination of the vice president of safety. And I'm doing my normal thing, preparing. I've got my video clips. And he walks into my hotel room and he goes, scratch all that. I want you to read him this letter. And Philip had written a letter from the vice president of safety to the CEO of the company. And it basically said, dear Mr. CEO, we're doing this wrong. We're doing this wrong. And if we really say safety is number one, we need to fix this, this, and this. And I'm the vice president of safety. I'm asking you to go to the board and change these things. That's a simplified version. I said, Philip, that's crazy. I've never used a letter like this in the courtroom. I think everybody's going to go berserk. Plus, I've got a game plan already. He goes, the jury didn't need to hear all that. They've heard all that three days in a row now. I want you to read this letter. I said, yes, sir. Well, that letter was phenomenal. Oh, my gosh. It was a superstar moment in the courtroom. It's one of those dreamy moments in the courtroom. And I got to live it, Dan. I got to live that moment in the courtroom that it's just what you hear, these, these crazy things where I just stand up. So I've got a letter from you to the CEO. I'm going to read it out loud. I'm going to see if you'll sign it. And I had a pen. And of course, the defense goes berserko, which made it go even better. And then I read the letter. Would you sign it? He says, no. We marked it as an exhibit, sat down. It was phenomenal. And so that's an example where Philip Miller, he can also expand your, your creativity. He gives you tools that you may not have. And he's going to have the confidence to tell you when you're going down the wrong path. What'd the letter say? I'll send you the letter. I'll be glad to, but I don't have it with me in, right now. But Well, give us, the, give us the, the Reader's Digest version. I'm not saying verbatim, Satch. Yeah, so it, the letter said, we had learned through our 
I don't like to use the word shadow jury, Dan. I like call them trial observers. I don't like the word shadow jury, but for purposes of everyone who's listening today so they know what we're talking about, the shadow jury or the trial observers, Philip was facilitating about eight trial observers during the trial. And we had learned that the trial observers felt like the 18-wheeler company was using their driver as their words, a scapegoat, and that it started to be a sentiment among the trial observers that they were worried that the 18-wheeler company was going to fire the truck driver. And they didn't think this was all the truck driver's fault. They thought it was the corporation's fault. So in the first paragraph, and that's another thing that just blew my mind, where this is where a jury consultant who's listening to the trial observers, which I'm not doing right now, but I'm just listening to the Philip Miller every night briefs me on what the shadow jury is saying. But Philip says, you need to try to protect the defendant driver. We're at a high level of trial lawyer right now. When me, is the, I'm representing six different plaintiffs. And not only do I got to represent them, but now I have got to protect the defendant truck driver. He says, yes, sir. That's what I want you to do. So in the first paragraph of this letter, it says, as vice president of safety, I believe that no matter what the verdict is, we should keep truck driver, his name was Aaron Foster, hired as a truck driver in our company. So that's the level of this letter. Then it goes on to say something along the lines of, we've learned that we have got a breakdown in our training system when it comes to communicating about hazardous materials to first responders, to the public after there's been a trucking accident. Matter of fact, our corporate safety office did not immediately communicate to the first responders, state police, fire departments, and et cetera, after we knew there was a wreck that's on fire, that there's formic acid on there. So I would like to change our policies this state as soon as the trucking company is aware of an accident where there's hazardous materials on board, that the trucking company proactively contact the local authorities about what's on board. That's just an example. Bless you, Dan. Even though I didn't hear it, you did mute yourself. Oh, I'm trying to be uh, conscientious of the recording, Satch. I'm trying to be more professional here. Yeah, bless, bless your soul. Thank you. Bless. I appreciate it. So that's just an example. And then at the bottom of it, it had a signature line with the vice president of safety's name on it. Got it. That's nice and creative. Creative Philip Miller. I only became friends with him recently. Thank God him and I met speaking at a uh, at a, this fair and fair they have like a, they're a big law firm in the South. And so they had their, their annual meeting. And so Philip was teaching, teaching there and I was teaching there and our paths crossed. It was pretty cool because he was actually at, at TLU 2021, but we never met. I didn't know who he was, but people said, oh, this famous guy, this famous consultant here, Philip Miller, the Miller Mousetrap. I'm like, where's he at? Like to meet somebody famous, but that just shows what kind of guy he is too. Cause he wasn't speaking. He was just there to learn. And so many times, you know, so many lawyers these days are like, I would never go to conference unless I was going to be speaking. I'm like, oh, really? There's nothing, there's nothing there for you to learn? It's like, you know it all? That must be great to be in that position. I mean, hopefully one day I'll be there, but uh, not quite yet. Let me ask you, because, you know, your presentation and, you know, being a trial lawyer, uh, through the pandemic and getting a chance to meet so many great trialers and study them all, I really realized there was only one thing that you all had in common. And that is your relentless focus on your connection with the jury. And so I want to talk to you about connection in general. And what do you do to, you know, what is connection with the jury? What, is it, what does it mean to you? Because let me just put it in context. Because people always say authenticity, credibility, this. 
I think those are the results of connection. But you can't say, I mean, how do you be authentic? How do you be credible? No, that's the resulting feeling you give somebody when you're connected to them or they're con and they're connected to you. So I don't know if that makes sense, but it does. So I have a personal formula for this and I'm glad to share. Maybe it, someone will connect with it, maybe not. But I believe, and I want to also say that before I say this, that this has been a journey to get to this connection. This does not, did not come easy. And I would say it's been a trans transformational season in my life to be able to connect at this level that, that we're blessed to be able to do now. But here it is. We believe that we have to, that I have to connect through selflessness. That's the key word there, selflessness. And that we have, when we connect through selflessness, in my belief system, number one, that is for the glory of God, that what I'm doing is for the glory of God, and that's why I'm doing it. Second, it's got to be for the glory of, and I write out the names of my clients, and then even the names of the jurors, and then even the names of the wrongdoers, because that's something that's developed me is to realize if I'm connecting through selflessness, then I can actually be a positive impact for my clients, for these jurors, and even the people who hurt or killed our clients. And so that's the two levels of connection through selflessness. Now, what does that mean you cannot do? That means you have to intentionally, not subconsciously, but consciously, you have to say not for pride, praise, or ego. If I am trying to connect with a group of 12 people, and I'm leading with pride, ego, or I'm seeking praise for what I'm about to do, cannot connect with them at the level that is needed for my clients. Now, you, you may say, or someone listening to this say, I'm the most humble person in the world, and I say, hallelujah for you. But in my life, pride has been an, an, a demon I've had to struggle with, and I have to focus on humility and then I realized as I was speaking early on, I had a problem because I was seeking praise. You know, I'd want to stand up there. How good did I do? How good did I do? How good did I do? And so this is why I say, Dan, it's been transformational for me because now it's for the glory of God, for the glory of the clients, for the glory of whoever I'm supposed to be up here helping. And it's not for pride, praise, or ego. So I like, okay, I realize this. I know this now. How do I apply it to me? All right, I know these things. These are the steps to connect. And so I had to come up with something for me to intentionally do this. And I call it, I put on my, my hat, H-A-T. And I put it on and it's called H-A-T, humble abiding truth. That every word that comes out of my mouth in jury selection, in opening, in direct, in cross, it is, no questions asked, humble abiding truth. And if I always put that hat on, and that is how I am for the duration of the jury trial or the moments in front of those people, then and only then can I truly connect with selflessness to make the impact for my clients in the community and even that jury and even the wrongdoers that everybody deserves. Speaking of, you know, the wrongdoers, I, tell us, I know there was a case that the case that I think you were speaking about with Philip with representing the six plaintiffs. That case was about a toxic accident or something like that. Is that right? Yes, sir. 
Some people got their throat, their lungs burned. Yes, sir. First responders. Permanently burned airways. And the, the defendant driver who, no, it was something about that case and where that case came from. Is that it? There's something about the driver, about helping this driver. He tells, you know what I'm talking about when you were in this deposition. So that was the most fascinating story about actually caring about, you know, the wrongdoer that I've heard. So if you could share that, I would appreciate it. One of my, it's one of my favorite Satchel Oliver stories. You know, we get together with Joe and other people. Like, What's your favorite Satchel Oliver story? I'm like, this is one of mine. So tell us that about that. Okay. Well, Dan, you're now getting very good at your interviewing skills because anytime you get a trial lawyer to cry, that means you've been a successful interviewer. All right. Progress. Here we go. That story is a very emotional story. And one I don't tell very often, you're pulling it out of me. So I'll, I'll share it with you. You have to go back in time before the Old Dominion verdict. And this is where it's amazing how God connects the dots and you have no clue what's going on. But we were representing, we got a phone call from a family the, uh, where their son and the daughter's father, Andy, had been killed in a car wreck in, in eastern Arkansas. He was sitting stopped in a construction zone when a three-quarter ton truck never hits the brakes rear ends him and takes his life. And they wanted our our law firm to represent them in that case. So we started doing that. And we started doing everything that we teach and that you know about and and everything to get ready for that jury research and et cetera, to get ready for that that trial. And we started taking depositions. And I was doing, I was ready to take the driver's deposition who was in the three-quarter ton truck. And I had my visual aids, just like I say, depositions are trial everything ready to go. And this young man walked into the conference room and, and his head was just drooping down. And the defense lawyer is is kind of got his hand on his back and very carefully, you know, you could tell the defense lawyer was concerned for this young man. And he walks him over and tells him where to sit. And the young man never looks up at me. And I started taking his deposition and the young man kept his head down and he'd answer, yes, no, true, I don't know. And it didn't take me very long to recognize that this young man was broken. And I didn't know why. Like I could guess one reason. He's been involved in a wreck where someone's life is taken, but I didn't know all the reasons. And so in part of that case, the investigation showed that this young man should never have been hired by this corporation. He had multiple felony convictions, terroristic threatening, using an illegal firearm inappropriately, and and some other things. He'd been kicked out of college. And there's just a list of things that, that violated this industry standards and violated the policies of the corporation where he never should have been hired. And they knew about it. So as you know, Dan, I'm prepared to go in there and get these this deposition testimony. It's great for my case. So I started to ask the young man about the night where he used a firearm illegally. And, and he even sinks lower into his sink, into his seat. I mean, he just melts. And at one point in one of his answers, he says to me, you wouldn't understand. I said, what do you mean? Well, well, help me understand. He said, they called me a girlfriend, something really bad. I said, okay. And I went to my car to get a gun. and I wasn't going to hurt anybody. I just shot the gun in the air. He goes, you wouldn't understand. And I said, help me understand. Why can't I understand? And he basically indicated, and I can't remember his exact words, but I wouldn't understand because I am white and he's African-American. And it, what his girlfriend was called was so inappropriate and so horrible that I could never understand what he was going through. And I said, okay, well, tell me more about it. He goes, that night, I had, before that night, 
and he starts to wake wake up a little bit. I had everything going for me, everything going for me. I'd gotten a scholarship to play football. I was actually making pretty good grades. I was in college. I was going to get a degree. And that one night, I got kicked out of college. I got kicked off the football team. He goes, I've tried to get into other colleges, and nobody will let me in. I've tried to get jobs. I can't get jobs. The only company that would hire me. He goes, I, I can't get it. I just, this young man is just crushed, and he's broken, all because one night. And most of the felony convictions that we were using in the case derived from that one night. Well, we finished that case, and it went well. We got a historic result. And after it was concluded, I sat down with Joe Dodd, the mother of the, of the gentleman who got killed. And I told her the same story that I just told you, Dan. And I said, I think that we might need to consider and pray about maybe doing something for that young man. And I remember her saying, like, what? Like, what do you mean? So I don't know. We've, we've got the funds. Maybe we set up a trust and we fund that trust to maybe help him. And she goes, for what? I said, maybe to jumpstart his life. Maybe to get him a home, get him a vehicle. Maybe he wants to start a job. He's got one daughter, maybe to help her, just something to jumpstart his life. She goes, I'll pray about this, and I'll talk to the rest of the family. And Joe Dodd called me back about three days later, and she goes, we want to do it. We prayed about it. We want to do it. I said, okay. Well, I don't even know if we can do this. I've never done it before, but I'll call his defense lawyer, and I'll tell him what y'all want to do. So I called the defense lawyer up. He goes, you want to what? I told him what we wanted to do. I've never heard of this, but I'll bring him in and see if he's willing to, to do this or not. The defense lawyer called me back a couple days later and says, are you sitting down? Because I've got a story to tell you. He said they brought the young man in, the defendant who was driving the truck, and he, he sat across the desk from, from, from the defense lawyer in the chair, and he was broken, just like the day that he gave his deposition to me. And the defense lawyer told me that I communicated to the young man what Andy's family, Joe Dodd, and the daughters wanted to do for this young man. And the young man, the defendant, after he heard what the family wanted to do, he raised up his head. He looked at the defense lawyer and he said, you mean they forgive me? You mean they forgive me? And the defense lawyer said, yes, young man, they forgive you. And this lawyer told me that it's like that young man took his first breath that he's taken since before the breaking The power of forgiveness, it'll set you free. It'll set you free. And so you're like, golly, you think that's the end of the story? It's not the end of the story because not long after that, there was a tragic accident where an Old Dominion 18-wheeler got into an accident and the 18-wheeler's on fire. It has nothing to do that wreck has nothing to do with what I just told you, except for one thing. That 18-wheeler's on fire, and there's formic acid burning on that trailer, and the old man didn't tell anybody. Matter of fact, they fibbed about it several times. Why were they hiding it? And so the state trooper who went in to work on that scene, along with six other first responders, his name is Sergeant Frank McMillian. And Sergeant Frank McMillian's son is the young man who rear-ended our client, Andy Hardesty. A few years earlier. And so when Frank McMillian's got permanently burned airway, Sergeant Frank McMillian, he actually called the defense lawyer that was his son's defense lawyer. And that defense lawyer, along with Sergeant Frank McMillian, said, they want us 
to join them as their plaintiff's attorneys on that case. And we are thankful they did, and we're honored to do so. And that is the case that received the $75 million verdict for six different six responders. And I actually, not long ago, asked, how is the young man doing? Be Frank's son. His name is Chance. And it was great news because he told me that Chance had used some of those funds to start up his own detailing business where he details vehicles. He had a home and a vehicle. He had jump-started his life again as able to move forward. So we as trial lawyers can make a difference beyond our wildest imaginations. Clients, we can learn so much from our clients and just the art of forgiveness. The, that Old Dominion trial, I mean, that's, I imagine, your signature trial so far, like the trial that you have the result, the help, all that stuff. So, and we always learn when we go to trial. So what would you say your three biggest takeaways from things you learned from doing that trial that helped you become, you know, because it's a growth process, right? And whether it's like this or whether it's, you know, very vertical, steep growth. Obviously, we're looking for steep growth, not super slow, because we want to be great as fast as possible. So the three big takeaways, trial lawyer lessons from the Old Dominion verdict. Besides hire Philip Miller as your trial consultant, of course. Phil paid me to say that. <laughs> Less is more. Be number one. The more concise you are, the more clarity you have. Less is more. Number two would be trust the jury. And number three, selflessness. When you say selflessness, let's say more about that part. Selflessness. That's where I think that connecting through selflessness and making that trial all about everybody but you and or everyone it's about everyone but me and when you combine you know less is more this is what i learned from joe freed in the speed trial methodology and we've been applying in, in our in our method in our way of who we are that's what i mean by less is more you know the 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 15 minute direct examination of our trucking safety expert one of the star witnesses in the case was on for 4 minutes and 13 seconds and so I'm, I'm not saying it has to be four minutes and 13 seconds. My point is, is that it's what was needed and it happened to be four minutes and 13 seconds. That's the point. It's just, just do what's needed. Less is more generally. Positive repetition instead of despicable repetition. A big fan of positive repetition versus despicable. Well, give us an example of the contrast so that people understand. Sure. At least I can understand me. <laughs> At least I understand the difference. So positive repetition is when you are able to tell your story through different witnesses, visual aids, or modalities in different ways. So, for example, I think you've seen our two-by-four timeline. That's, that's one way of telling the story. Then we also have a red flag timeline. It's the same, same times, but we tell it through a corporate red flag way. And then, of course, we have different witnesses where we use photographs, and one witness may be 3.08 p.m., and another witness may be 3.30 p.m., and another witness may be at 8 p.m. And so that's three different ways of telling the same story, but in different positive repetition where it's not the same thing versus despicable repetition is if I use the exact same timeline with six different witnesses in a row, the jury's like, good Lord, you think I'm stupid? 
I don't need to see the same timeline over and over and over. So if you say the same thing over and over and over or use the same visual aid over and over and over, that becomes despicable repetition. But if you use different modalities, even if you if you believe this story needs to be told three, four, five, six times, but you do it through different witnesses with different visual aids, that's positive repetition. And if you use positive repetition, the jury is able to receive that story, digest it, and then tell your client's story in deliberations with the same passion. Despicable repetition, I will tell you a sign and symptom because I've done it. And I've only been able to video it in jury simulations because I can't video the real deliberation. But let me tell you a sign of despicable repetition. When you're watching the video of the jury mock trial of the deliberation and they say, I can't stand that plaintiff's lawyer. Does he think I'm stupid? Or you hear comments like that. That means you used despicable repetition. I remember my days as a criminal defense lawyer and a, and a juror saying to me, you know, you didn't have to beat that dead horse so many times. And I'm thinking, I was, I was thinking back, back then, I think, well, for you, but I don't know how, how quick the rest of the jury learned this fact, but I'm glad that we got the fact, we got to the right result. So the last topic I'm going to ask you about is your presentation on negotiation that you did with Joe Freed, because I have to ask you about it because I got to stop in because it wasn't recorded, so we don't have it for posterity. But what I would do when I ask you is, you, I know you and Joe have been working on this real hard, and you guys just don't half-ass anything and just, oh, we're going to come up with a new presentation. Let's just throw it together. You actually you know, work for days and plan for months. And so on this negotiation, what did you say, like, the, the, the three takeaways? Because I was working with Philip on a presentation. He goes, Dan, you got to make sure you got three big learning lessons, three big takeaways for the crew, for the audience in a presentation, because that's what they're going to remember. So what big three takeaways about negotiation did you want that group, because you had like a very full audience for a Saturday morning, because we all know from going to conferences, we call it the Saturday fade. I don't know how it happens. I get more excited about learning every day, but some folks, they get tired. I get it. Or they want to go relax instead of like, all right, I did my work for the last couple of days. But on Saturday morning, you had a full house on the negotiation. And so what, did, what are the big takeaways for that you guys have learned about negotiation that you're sharing? You have to have both a trial battleship and a negotiations settlement battleship. And you're the captain of both of those ships and you're sailing them at the exact same time. So the trial battleship, and I actually said this to, to the group, Dan, is everything that we're learning at Trial Arts University at Huntington Beach. If you want to go to the Rex Paris uh, section or all the other great trial lawyers out there. That's, that's the trial battleship. And that's what you're, you're, you're doing. And that's great. And we have to do that. But if we want to maximize results for our clients, you also have to simultaneously, as you're doing everything that we're learning on how to be great trial lawyers, you also have to be the captain of the negotiations settlement battleship and they're going together. So if we're in this case, and we're sailing both battleships, doing everything we've talked about from depositions to discovery to jury selection, opening statement, the trial battleship, then what we spent three hours talking about at your event is the how do you make sure that the negotiations battleship is right up here with the trial battleship? And we spent three hours going into what's into that battleship. But here's let me tell you my goal is that when we get to the end of the case, 
Both battleships are there. They're both ready. They're armed. They've done everything possible. And the only thing next is a jury trial. And you can look your client in the eye and know in your own heart, I'm ready for either one of these battleships to move forward. If the wrongdoer and their insurance companies want to pay full and fair justice, I'll call off the trial battleship and the settlement battleship will move forward. However, if the wrongdoers and the insurance companies do not want to pay full and fair justice, I'll call off the settlement battleship and the trial battleship will move forward to verdict. And that is how our heads and mentality have got to be throughout the entire case and all the way through. So we spent three hours on the settlement negotiations battleship and setting the monetary reserve is about number one and how to do that and the steps in the process, which takes a lot of time. But I will tell you right now, a little secret, it includes no demand letter, Or as I would say, the demand letter, if you have to send one, it's got to be way off into the distance toward the very end. And it's got to be strategically done after you know what full and fair value is. However, too many of us lawyers, plaintiff's lawyers, are sending demand letters. We have no clue what the value of the case is. And the insurance companies are setting the monetary reserve based upon a demand letter that has no idea what the value of the case is. And we went into this detail about how plaintiff's lawyers are graded based upon their abilities to sell the trial battleship. They're graded. You get grade A, grade B, grade C. Well, if you're graded by the insurance companies, the insurance companies are grading every plaintiff's lawyer. Thanks, Dan. The, The insurance companies are grading every single plaintiff's lawyer across the country that ever in, ever touches that insurance company. They're getting a grade of some sort. They may call it different things, but at the end of the day, it's a grade. So if you're at the beginning of the case, you've not taken the 30B6 deposition, you have no clue what's going on with the investigation, and you send a demand letter over to the other side, and you are a grade C lawyer with the insurance company, they immediately cut that demand in half, then lower it more for a grade C plaintiff's lawyer and the monetary reserve is set. Well, you decide, your client says, I'm not going to take that. Oh my gosh, that's awful. So you move forward in the litigation, but the monetary reserve before you ever filed your complaint is down here. And overcoming that monetary reserve is extremely challenging, almost impossible, the lower your grade is. And this is just reality. I'm not trying to be offensive to anybody. That's one reason it was a real conversation, Dan, is this is reality. We want to be a trial battleship lawyers. I think that's what you're passionate about. So your your whole point of doing trial lawyers university. Well, if we're A's and then we also take everything Joe and I were teaching on, on the negotiation battleship, you can see how it adds up to unbelievable results, verdict or settlement. We'll do whatever is is needed. All right. Well, Satch, thank you so much for joining us here. And uh, I appreciate it a lot. And I appreciate the lessons learned here, too. And I'm going to appreciate it more. We get that whole family meeting set done. And, you know, we got you scheduled for New York City because this is uh, the Big Apple. You know, I've never been to the East Coast for a, a program. So it's a little... 
a little scary. I mean, not, you know, it's a little scary because every time I do a program, I have to sign very large contracts for hotels that I never, and I hope people will show up. I pray because I'm like, ooh. But, but every time it's like, you know, it's like a trial date. I sign a contract, that's my trial date. And everything, every day, every moment up to that date is on that, you know, what to do, how to put together, get the right people, get, you know, the whole atmosphere. So, so that the ship is, the ship has left the bay, has left the harbor, but we are, now we've got to cross the stormy seas of the next four months called getting ready for TLU NYC. So I hope that you will get to be a part of it because I think you'll be excited about it. And I'm going to figure out how to make it a better conference. And it's different because it's like a, it's like a, it's like a comparing a comedy and a drama or a suspense movie, just like the differences in the two places of, you know, Huntington Beach in New York City. But, but we're going to figure it out. We got a lot of great lawyers out there who I've never met who are coming together. You know, Benedict Morelli, Ben Rabinovitz, Evan Torgan, Jeff Corrick, Judy Livingston, this guy Bob, Robert Mongaluzzi. So there's a lot of these East Coast, I call them, you know, gangster trial lawyers. I, you know, because they're like very, they're very... They, they really keep themselves separate out there. It's like, you know, we don't see them at conferences that we go to. So uh, I'm looking forward to meeting them all and hopefully you too in New York City at the Westin in Times Square. So we'll see. We'll see. But we're hoping. I'm sure it's going to be awesome, Dan. I have no doubt in my mind, and I hope I'm able to join. But if I'm not, I'm certain it's going to be a grand slam. And if, if anybody is listening to this podcast with Dan and I, and you have not been, if you've been, you're going to go. If you've not been, I encourage you to go to the Trial Lawyers University event. I really believe that you're going to get more than one point. You're going to get 10 points that are going to, you're going to bring back and it'll change, change the way you practice in a positive way. I sure hope. So that's, that's the goal, to change the world one trial lawyer at a time. There you go, buddy. I love it. Thanks a lot, Sasha. Join us September 20th to 23rd in New York City for TLU Live. We're going to have some of the greatest trial lawyers in the country coming from Brian Panish, Ben Morelli, Judy Livingston, Joe Freed, Zoe Littlepage, Rex Paris, and the list goes on and on. And not only will we have four lecture tracks, but we're going to have seven workshop tracks where you can work on and hone a specific skill in a small group taught by a great trial lawyer. The website is tlunyc.com. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University, produced and powered by LawPods.